Now, and let's turn on our Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 16. Sunday morning, studying the book of Romans together. Come now to chapter 16. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of these guys coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and they'll put a Bible in your hand, and you can follow along not only with your ears, but your eyes in our Bible study today. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. So we come, and one of the great things about going through a book of the Bible expositionally is that we get to... uh, uh, study passages that aren't uh, normally taught on a Sunday morning and uh, that are uh, very rich and instructive. Chapter 16, verse 1, Paul writes by the Spirit, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church at Sencrea, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and a sister in whatever business she has need of you, for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all of the churches of the Gentiles. And likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved uh, Epinetus, uh, who is the first fruits of Achaia to uh, Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. Uh, Greet Amplius, my uh, beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachys, my beloved. Uh, Greet Pellus, according uh, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis, who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet uh, Asinicritus, Felijon, Hermas, uh, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with them. Greet uh, Philogelus and Julia, uh, Nerysus and his sister, and Olympus, and all uh, the saints who are with them. And uh, greet one another, he says in verse 16, with a holy kiss, the churches of Christ uh, greet you. And one disclaimer, um, I think I got most of those names right, (laughs) but if you're going to use them in your common conversations, uh, uh, Google them for the correct pronunciation. Thank you, Lord, for your word as always. We thank you for the revelation that it is of you, of your heart, your mind, uh, your truth, your righteousness, Lord and your love, your goodness, we would not know anything about you and what is important to you and what ought to be important to us, except that you have crossed that infinite divide and made it known to us. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would bless us in the study of of these verses as Paul wraps up this letter to the church uh, in Rome and that you would meet with us this morning through your word. 
And we pray these things and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The Apostle Paul now begins to close his letter to the church in Rome in earnest. I mean, he's endeavored to do it back in chapter 15, uh, verse 13. You, uh, he gives a benediction, and you, and you almost think that, well, he's a, pretty much wrapped up there. And then uh, the, uh, another benediction, a closing statement at the, the final verse of chapter uh, uh, 15 there in verse 33. He has one more benediction in him, uh, as we'll see in a, in a couple of weeks at the, to close uh, chapter 16. Finally, it's, it's almost as if he doesn't want the letter uh, to end. And, and more than that, it, is, uh, it isn't finished until he has that sense that he's communicated everything that he uh, is intended to by the Holy Spirit. And so the le letter continues to uh, 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 enlarge itself. And chapter 16 is considered kind of largely a postscript, a P.S. on the letter uh, whenever we write a letter and the body of the letter is done, and yet there's some very important things without which communicating the letter wouldn't be complete. We add a postscript to it, at least we used to, and uh, Paul has done that now in, as he's closing this letter. The bulk of this postscript is given over to uh, Paul's expressing his personal greetings to uh, the many, many friends he had made in the course of his Christian life, and in the course of his Christian ministry, who were now living in, uh, in Rome and were a part of the church there. Uh, in this list, he greets no less than 28 individuals, and uh, 26 of them by name, and five separate groups of people as he closes this letter. Uh, in all of these years that he's been serving the Lord at this point, uh, he is still uh, kept up with their whereabouts, and uh, he knows they're there. He greets most uh, virtually uh, all of them, uh, not only by name, but with a personal comment as well. And when you look through the list, the names are kind of foreign to us a little bit, but it, it, as you would study it, he greets men. He greets women. He greets Jews. He greets Gentiles. He greets uh, slaves. He greets freedmen. He greets those who are rich. He greets those who are poor, those who are powerful. He greets those who are powerless. And it gives us not only, I think, a great insight into the diversity of the church at Rome. So often today we're looking to establish churches and to attract one certain kind of a person, as if a church family or the family of the body of Christ is made up of any one uh, generation or any one kind of personality or person. It's made up of, of the broadest cross-section of people. And we see this broad diversity within the church at Rome. But not only do we see, does the list reveal uh, to us the broad diversity of the church of Rome, but it also reveals the broad diversity of Paul's personal relationships. I think if nothing else, this list of relationships that Paul had in, in the church uh, in, at Rome alone. It certainly blows to smithereens any ideas that we might get as we uh, study Paul's life in the book of Acts or we see him revealed in, as the theologian that he was, the lover of God that he was in, in the epistles that he wrote. But I think that sometimes people get this idea that Paul was some kind of a, a brooding loner. 
that he was someone who lived largely an isolated kind of monastic lifestyle, some kind of an extrovert that really didn't like people. He'd rather be in the books and and uh, kind of a prickly personality that uh, you want to read his letters, but you see him in person and he really isn't much of a, 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 a people person, someone who couldn't get along with, with other people or enjoy the company of other people. And yet it's a, a list like this that may, uh, necessarily uh, uh, blows all of that up. I think that sometimes when we look at Paul and and his separation with Barnabas and uh, over John Mark, as is recorded in the book of Acts, and Paul makes that stand on the basis of principle and is never condemned in the Scriptures for having done that, uh, that we can tend to look at him as, as a hard man, or the idea that he is so sober, so serious about God and the kingdom of God that uh, that this, uh, there was no place for uh, human relationship in any kind of, uh, of great uh, depth or breadth in terms of uh, the sheer number of people, and yet none of that is true. His life was deeply connected with others. He valued personal relationship, and uh, though, again, uh, very, very deep spiritually and theologically, he enjoyed the company of every kind of person. Now, this uh, section of Scripture... Uh, revealing really the high value that Paul placed on human relationships uh, is such a strong encouragement really to every Christian uh, to follow Paul's example in being broadly and deeply connected with others, uh, other Christians relationally. And I, I've mentioned it before, but it may be months or years before I mention it again. It just depends on what passages we find ourselves in. But uh, every Christian should have at least three to five uh, current, personal, deep relationships with other Christians. Christians that uh, know and are current with our life, uh, that uh, we know will pray for us. People that we can go to for fellowship, that we can go to uh, for spiritual accountability, for perspective. People that we can say, hey, can I just bounce uh, a decision that's in front of me off of you? Or how do you see this situation uh, biblically? And to be able to have that kind of perspective that comes from the iron that sharpens iron as the Bible teaches. To have friends that spur us on to greatness in the kingdom of God. To grow as Christians and not to stagnate. And, and then very often just simply for in, encouragement. And I think that some of the places that to have that happen within a church, and sometimes if a church is a little bit larger, it, uh, there can be some challenges to it. But certainly getting involved in any of the smaller groups that meet in the course of a week here at, at the church is uh, helpful for that. You have the men's ministry, you have the women's ministry, you have the seniors' ministry, youth, young adult ministries, you've got home fellowships, and, and you can go to the, the ministry page on the website to see these smaller groups where it is easier to come to know uh, people and develop relationships, especially if that's something that we're wanting uh, to have uh, happen. And as with the Apostle Paul here, I think that one of the great places to develop deep and meaningful relationship uh, is for it to happen in the same way that it did with Paul. And that is to simply engage in some kind of Christian service, wherever it is, uh, whatever church that we attend. 
and uh, so often as we serve uh, in some area of the church, we become a part of a team that is engaged in that particular area, and it isn't long before uh, we're talking with one another, and we're praying for one another, and we know each other, uh, and caught up on a weekly basis, and Christian service is a great place for that to happen as well. The question is sometimes raised regarding how could Paul know so many Christians in Rome, uh, given the fact that he had never ever been to Rome. It is important to realize that Paul's been a Christian at this point for uh, 25 years, and he's been actively in ministry for, uh, as an apostle for 20 years. And he's met a lot of Christians in the course of, of those uh, years. Additionally, it's important to realize that there was a tremendous amount of freedom in the Roman Empire. To be a part of the Roman Empire and all of these different countries and regions and provinces that made up the Roman Empire, to be a citizen in the Roman Empire or in some status within the Roman Empire meant that borders that were typically you'd have to cross half a dozen of them to go from one end to the other in, in the Rome, before the Roman Empire of these different countries. Now all of this was opened up and it created a lot of movement within uh, the, the Roman, uh, Roman Empire, and very much like our modern-day society within the United States. Uh, in those days, that very few people, as is the case in our country, uh, stay in one place their entire lifetimes. So you've got studies by uh, the United States Census Bureau, and uh, today the average American will move their household 11.7 times uh, in their lifetime. In any given single year in the United States of America, fully 28 million Americans uh, will move. And the same thing was true in the Roman Empire. It was a very, very mobile society. And uh, because uh, the uh, society was both mobile then, as we see with Paul, and with us uh, today, the gospel that we sow into a person's life, or the discipleship that we offer to someone, a hand up, helping them out in their relationship with the Lord. Uh, so often as we're engaged in people's lives and we may know them a week, we may know them a month, we may know them three years, but then they go off who knows where in the whole wide world or in the United States of America as a whole. And they can end up making an impact spiritually from our contact with them in 10, 12, 15 different places before uh, they end up, you know, late in life, settled into some, uh, some place in the course of their, uh, their lives for the, the kingdom of God. In the Bible, I think that Priscilla and Aquila are classic examples of this very thing. Uh, Aquila came from Pontus on the southern shore of the Black Sea. He and Priscilla, his wife, they uh, lived in Italy until the Roman Emperor Claudius uh, uh, ordered all of the Jews out of Rome, and they then made their way to the city of Corinth, where they then ran into Paul because Paul was a, a, a tent maker, and their livelihood was tent making as well. And, uh, and that Paul stayed with them for a time, and then they traveled with Paul to Ephesus. And, and after we lose track of them there, here we discover that they returned to Rome. And so Paul greets them, as we'll see in verses 3 and 4. That's just the way the society was. And it really it makes us realize that 
how uh, a little bit of time invested in a relationship for the kingdom of God will live on for long decades and be influential for the kingdom of God. The first person that Paul mentions is a woman by the name of Phoebe, and he describes her there as our sister in verse uh, 1. So she uh, was a Christian. Uh, She's described as a servant of the church in Sencrea. Sencrea was one of the two seaports of the city of Corinth. And uh, the church at Sencrea was probably a church plant out of uh, Corinth proper, the church that Paul had established uh, there, and she might have very well become a Christian under Paul's uh, ministry. He describes her as a helper of many, including Paul himself in verse 2. So she has a ministry in her own right and uh, had not only been a benefit to others, but also a benefit to uh, Paul. He doesn't elaborate. The Greek word for helper means uh, she who gives aid. So most likely she was a woman of some means, uh, wealthy, and she used that wealth to help others and uh, in, in assisting them materially. In verse 2, he commends her uh, to them, and by that, he, he means that in those days, if you were traveling from one city to another as a Christian, very often you would carry a letter of commendation from an apostle or from the leader of the church that you were a part of. There were a lot of shysters uh, in Christianity. There are a lot of them today, by the way. But there were a lot of them in those days, too, and they just used Christianity as a way to make a buck, and they would uh, travel the Roman Empire by going to these various cities and getting uh, food and clothing and all shelter and money and all of these kinds of things. But uh, they cared nothing for Christ. They cared nothing for the body of Christ. They were just uh, thieves in, in religious clothing. And so they discovered a, a necessity of giving someone a letter of commendation so she could present that in Rome. She, had no, she was unknown to the church in Rome. And a, a letter of commendation from the Apostle Paul uh, by saying she is safe and extend every hospitality and uh, meet any need that she has in the business that she's come to Rome with, well, that letter from Paul would have opened up uh, every uh, door for her in terms of, of the business that she was, uh, had come to Rome to en- engage in. You notice that uh, there in, in, in verse 2 uh, that she, uh, she had come to Rome in business and uh, something of her livelihood, something of what she did in Sencrea required uh, her to, uh, business-wise to come to Rome. It's almost uh, certain that Phoebe uh, was the one who carried the letter uh, from, uh, f- uh, from Paul, uh, from the city of Corinth, uh, to Rome, and uh, this incredible letter of the book of Romans entrusted uh, to her. Uh, the reason that that's um, uh, the, uh, the widely held belief is that she was, number one, well known to Paul. She had traveled to Rome from the area of Corinth, where Paul had written his letter to the church in Rome. And then, uh, as the account lays out here, both she and the letter arrive in Rome at, at precisely uh, the same time. There was no mail service in those days, and so you would, uh, at important correspondence, you would entrust to trustworthy people to deliver uh, for you. And the more important the letter was, then the more trustworthy uh, the person you would look for to then carry, uh, carry that, uh, that letter. 
It is remarkable that the Apostle Paul, and there are no other copies of this letter. He doesn't have them, you know, stored in his computer or in the iCloud. This is one copy of the letter to the church in Rome. And he entrusts what is absolutely the, the, the single most important treatise in human history. On the subject of the gospel and salvation, he entrusts it to a woman to deliver. And that is all the more remarkable, uh, especially in the light of the age. Within the Roman Empire at that time, even freeborn women uh, who uh, were Roman citizens, they could not attend, they could not speak in, they could not vote at uh, political assemblies. They couldn't hold any position at all. Uh, uh, of political responsibility. Uh, Socially, as someone wrote at the time, Roman males did not think women their equal, but neither did they hate them. Well, thank you for uh, damned by faint praise, I think, (laughs) fits there. Uh, And uh, this writer went on to state that Uh, the kind of mixed feelings of Roman men toward Roman women uh, is best summarized in a quote that was cited by uh, Caesar Augustus when he addressed the Roman uh, assembly as follows. He says, nature has made it so that we cannot live with them particularly comfortably, uh, but we can't live without them at all. And uh, and yet in in this very same political and social context of the ancient Roman world, the Apostle Paul entrusts this priceless letter to a woman. And then he heartily uh, commends her. And it is important to realize that uh, almost a third, uh, nine out of the the 28 people that Paul uh, greets here at the close of this letter are women. And the reason I take the time to make note of that here this morning is because very often today, people accuse Christianity in general and the Apostle Paul in particular of being disrespectful toward the status of women and nothing could be further uh, from the truth. He goes on and continues in verses 3 through 5 to greet Priscilla and Aquila. The names we're probably the most familiar with uh, in this list as students of the Bible. Their uh, activities, they're mentioned uh, frequently in the New Testament, and uh, Paul's ministry with them in in the book of Acts had a very long personal relationship Uh, ministry relationship with Paul, and uh, Aquila was a Jewish tent maker who ended up in Corinth, as I mentioned, uh, because of an edict by the Roman governor Claudius in 49 AD, forced all of the Jews out of Rome. Uh, They come to Corinth, Paul meets them there, Paul is a tent maker as well in terms of a livelihood, and uh, he ended up staying with them and working uh, with them in establishing that church there in Corinth. Uh, Tent making was the means by which uh, the Apostle Paul Paul supported himself while he was in ministry. It's very, very uh, interesting, I think, to realize that every Jewish boy Uh, Even if it was being trained as a rabbi, 
being trained to handle the Word of God and, and uh, uh, groomed in, in these kind of ways, whatever their interest might be in theology and a, a livelihood or a, a lifetime of engaging in, in, in theology, learning it, teaching it. Uh, every single Jewish boy was taught with that kind of an interest uh, then a practical trade that would put food on the table. And uh, the old Jewish proverb was, love work. He who does not teach his son a trade teaches him robbery. And uh, so Paul uh, had this deep theological background, uh, but his parents or those that were a part of his uh, rearing made sure he had something that he could uh, put food on the table at the end of the day that was valuable in that way in a secular context. Maybe you've heard of uh, someone in Christian ministry uh, who is engaged in tent making as a, a, a reference. And it refers to anyone, most often a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist who is engaged in that calling and uh, they must tent make, they must hold a job uh, independent of that in order to support themselves in uh, the spiritual thing that they're uh, endeavoring to do uh, for, for God. Later, when uh, Paul uh, sailed for Ephesus, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they accompanied him, and then somewhere in the course of things, they, uh, Paul tells us that they risked their lives uh, for him. And he thanked them uh, and, uh, uh, for that, and, and the whole early church, he said, were thankful as well. We're thankful that how whatever they did uh, that saved his life, that, that that occurred. We don't know what the details of that event were, uh, or where it happened. Paul doesn't give us any kind of elaboration. Most likely it happened in the city of Ephesus where Paul's ministry was having such an impact there uh, that it was denting the sails uh, of, uh, and, the, and impacting the worship of the goddess Diana. And a riot broke out and, and uh, Paul's life was threatened as a result of it. And uh, so probably in that environment, somehow they risked their life to secure his safety. And then at some point in time, they departed from Paul and they returned to Rome where they were now living. Paul also greeted uh, members of, uh, of the church that met in their house. It wasn't until the late 200s AD that churches met in anything other than a house. Churches were small, persecution kept it small. And the church was, uh, there was no, typically not the kind of money or resources to rent a building, to own a building. All of that would happen far later. Uh, all churches met in homes, and so Paul uh, greeted them, the church that was in their home as well. I do think it's interesting as well. There's so much that's interesting to me. Uh, I look at some of your faces, and I don't know how interesting it is to you. Uh, but we'll continue to uh, on the path of what is interesting to me uh, this morning. Uh, it is interesting to notice that when Paul, in the majority of the time when he addresses Aquila and Priscilla, he flips their names. He addresses uh, Priscilla and then Aquila. Yeah, very unusual in the ancient world uh, to greet the wife before the husband, and yet he, he did it uh, repeatedly. Uh, and uh, speculations for all of this include uh, that she ha had uh, the more 
she had a place of ministry that was more public than Aquila had, and so more well-known in that kind of a way than, uh, than, and better known in that way of the two. Or it could be very well be that she was just by temperament the more dominant of the two. I think all of us know couples like that. Uh, where the husband is an introvert. He just simply has uh, no interest in putting a lampshade on his head in any kind of a context, and trying to get two sentences out of him in a row is like pulling teeth. And, and he's very, very happy, very secure in, in, uh, in his personality and, and to work behind the scenes. And so you've got that kind of a silent type. And then uh, and they're more than happy to have their wife kind of uh, carry uh, the, the load in this regard. Far from being threatened by their wife, who is the extrovert, or uh, loves to have people around, they're happy to uh, offload all of the weight that is required relationally uh, in, in that to the wife and uh, not be threatened by it uh, at all. And, and uh, whatever the reason, neither Paul nor Aquila w- was an uncomfortable with this order. He greets uh, uh, Epinetus in, uh, in verse 5, and uh, he come from the, the, the uh, province of Asia in the Roman uh, Empire. The, uh, the cultural center of that province was Ephesus, and he remembers him as the first person that came to know the Lord in his ministry in that particular province in the Roman Empire. So long ago, and he remembers his name. And I mean, again, you get the, how, how what, what you think about Paul's prayer list as they're described in the Scriptures. But to remember such a name, he, he led so many to the Lord, so many people uh, he, he met, and yet this, uh, this uh, seeing people as individuals, maintaining a concern uh, for them. They just weren't, uh, you know, uh, individuals who were lost in this mass of people that he met in the course of his life. He mentions Mary in verse 6, and and he remembered how much she labored uh, uh, much for the church. Well, if as much as Paul labored for the church, you can imagine what kind of a man or woman gets his attention in terms of their labor. I mean, she must have been uh, extraordinary. I think as a Christian, if you were going to have anything written on your tombstone one day at the end of our life, you could ha- hardly have a, 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 a better inscription than that he labored or she labored much for the church. I mean, that is, that's the encapsulation of a life that has been well spent. I mean, as highly as you can spend uh, a life. And I think that by and large, the world, both then and today, if they were to come upon that kind of a, of a tombstone, they'd probably look at it, and if they didn't articulate it, they would certainly think it, uh, isn't that awful? Isn't that too bad? What a perfect waste of a human life. And yet for us as Christians, in the, in the eyes of the Apostle Paul, she is highly esteemed. And I would contend that every church that exists and functions and prospers, they do only because uh, the, uh, the sheer number of people who share the description uh, that she has here. And, uh, and such a life ends with more, as we know from other scriptures, than just having a tombstone that says he or she labored much for uh, the church. It all ends in a well-done 
from the very lips of Jesus one day. I think that most of us, I would assume that most of us have at least, you know, some handful of people in our life that think we are wasting our lives completely as Christians. I certainly have them. It was a perfectly good life. I mean, all, you know, so many other things that, that he might have done. Uh, or they look at you and, and they see your commitment to a local church, not only in terms of attendance, but then to see you serving and giving your life. And, and then they watch the sacrifice that you make. They watch the priority that you give uh, to all of this. And it's a complete mystery to them. They can't even begin to understand uh, why and how that could be fulfilling and why anybody would spend their life in, in, in that way. And they certainly don't understand it, any of the meaning and the joy and the satisfaction that it brings uh, to our lives. And so while the world uh, can look at us this way uh, and, uh, and concludes uh, 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 that our lives are being spent foolishly, we know better. Paul knew better. She knew better. Notice in verse 7, there's Andronicus and, uh, and Junia. Apparently, a, a husband and wife, they were fellow Jews of Paul. Uh, they had been imprisoned like Paul. He mentions that about them. They'd been Christians for a long time. In fact, they'd been Christians longer than Paul had been uh, Christians. And because they were Christians and Jews and had been Christians longer than Paul, it isn't unlikely that they were imprisoned as a result of Paul's persecution of the church in Jerusalem and in Israel prior to uh, becoming a Christian. And Paul declares that they were highly esteemed in the eyes of the apostles. Uh, and then there's uh, Amplius in verse uh, 8, and that was a common name in the Roman Empire for slaves, uh, indicating that he was probably a former slave who was now a freed man, and uh, Paul openly expressed his uh, love for him. And here you have Paul, he possesses none of the Jewish discrimination uh, against Gentiles, and he, and he reflects none of the discrimination of Romans against uh, slaves. Uh, not, he was not a respecter of persons uh, in any way. And of course, we, we shouldn't uh, be a respecter of persons in any way either. Well, he goes on in verse 9. And he talks about Urbanus, our fellow uh, worker in Christ. That's all we know. Stichys uh, in, uh, in, in verse 9, uh, described as being beloved by Paul. It, it was a, a very uncommon name in the ancient world, and uh, where it shows up in ancient history is uh, always associated with the imperial palace. And so uh, it indicates that uh, the gospel had reached into the upper levels of the servants and uh, that were around the emperor uh, and his family. Apelles is mentioned there in verse uh, 10 and described as approved in Christ. So there's something about this man. Uh, he'd gone through something very, very significant testing as a Christian, and he had emerged approved and uh, victorious. We're not told what this testing was, uh, it, it, but his faithfulness to God in the midst of it 
Whatever the trial was, whatever the difficulty it was, it, it, it impressed Paul and it became what he remembered about this man for the rest of his life. And I think that very often uh, God will take us through some great trial in our Christian life. And while we're thinking and all we're thinking about is just getting through the trial, one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time. That's all we think is going on uh, uh, at the moment. Uh, and yet, uh, we're in the middle of something that God is going to take us through that will one day become our legacy. It will become what we are known for supremely in the minds of, of other Christians uh, for the rest of our lives and even long after we're gone. And I think what a, an encouragement is to uh, some of us here this morning, as you find yourself in, in some great trial, uh, a divorce or a betrayal, sickness, illness, and and you may be in that trial this morning, and you will come through it. God will make sure that you come through it, and this will become the great mark of your life. It will be the season you'll be known for, for the rest of your life. And don't quit in the midst of it. Certainly don't abandon God in the midst of it. Allow God uh, it to approve you in the eyes of God and of man. He talks about those who are of the household of Aristobulus in verse 10. Aristobulus was possibly the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who ordered the death of all of the children in Bethlehem two years in, uh, under following uh, the birth of, uh, of Christ in order to kill Jesus as an infant. And so he ultimately, he, he lived as a private citizen in Rome. He became a friend uh, of the Emperor Claudius. But again, we see servants within his household uh, that are becoming Christians and how that gospel is permeating, uh, uh, not only among the, sla the, the ranks of the slaves, but moving right into uh, these grand households within uh, Rome. And Paul uh, greets his household and uh, the household slaves associated with, with this man who had, had become Christian. Uh, the Herodian there in verse 11 describes him as my countrymen, probably belonging to the family of Herod and also a Jew. He greets those who are of the household of uh, uh, Narcissus who are in the Lord. This might very well be historically Narcissus was a very famous uh, person within the Roman Empire. Uh, he became fabulously wealthy as a secretary to the Roman Emperor Claudius. As the secretary, no one could get even a piece of correspondence to the Emperor Claudius, much less an audience before the Emperor Claudius without this man's approval. That's the kind of uh, power and authority he had. Well, you might imagine you could become very wealthy related to that because you could demand uh, substantial sums of money in order to gain that audience or in order for a piece of correspondence to be <coughs> brought to the <coughs> attention uh, of uh, the, <coughs> the emperor. 
And so here you have a, a number of his household slaves who had become uh, Christians. And then there's uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa there in verse 12. Uh, they had labored in the Lord. The word labored there, in the original language, it means labored to the point of exhaustion. Their names are, are uh, uh, interesting, at least to me, uh, and uh, fascinating to you, I know. Uh, but they're derived from a word that uh, means to live luxuriously. And, uh, and it, it isn't uh, unlikely that they came from a background of comfort, a background of ease and, uh, and wealth and luxury. Uh, but as Christians here, uh, we see that they labor to the point of, uh, of exhaustion. There was nothing of uh, that kind of flabbiness spiritually that can uh, be, uh, happen so much with, with, uh, in, a, in a context of, of luxury. They were tough, tough women uh, when it came to their Christian service, and we have a lot of them around here as well. You can never, ever judge a book uh, by its cover. You look at where people come from in life, and you look at them from the exterior, and it isn't until you go to war with someone that you really find out what they are. I mean, there have been men and women that I, you would look at and you would even name them, like they're named here if you looked at them just externally and think that they're going to cave. I mean, the first things, uh, time things get hard at all and the conclusions that you can come to. And then uh, when they come into the middle of, of hardship, I mean, they rise. They're tougher than all of the, the guys or the gals that, you know, presented themselves as macho. They fall by the wayside. I mean, they're exposed by difficulty, and this kind of person isn't. There, there are people whose names come to my mind when I talk about this right now. It's interesting that on D-Day, when our, uh, our troops hit Omaha Beach, these men had been trained and trained and trained and trained and trained for uh, that invasion of the continent in order to uh, overthrow the Third Reich. And for all of that training, it was something like 90% of the men never fired a single bullet from, uh, from their guns. Uh, they got, uh, obviously the casualties were very high, but even those that didn't suffer casualties, the, the sheer intensity of the scene, it, it froze them. Uh, nothing can prepare us almost for uh, that kind of intensity. And, the, and then it is that, that group that you can look at and they can look like Barney Fife outwardly. And then somehow they, uh, they make the breakthrough. And it's the way that it is in, in the body of Christ. I remember playing a lot of basketball. And I grew up in Napa. And uh, you had uh, uh, the side of town that I grew up in. And uh, you had Ridgeview and, and uh, uh, Redwood Junior High School. And then you had uh, Silverado Junior High School, which is where all of the country club uh, kids lived. And a lot of them were flabby, I mean, in terms of personality, in terms of drive and all of this kind of thing. But if you thought all of them were, uh, you were out of your mind. And uh, here they'd come in and they come from wealth, they come from privilege, they come from luxury, and they'd take your head off the first moment that they could. Some of the toughest people you'd meet on a basketball court, on a football uh, 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 field. Most certainly these two 
they were uh, certainly sisters and perhaps twins. And so, uh, if you're expecting twins or you know somebody who is expecting twins and you're still looking for names, allow me to uh, forward these uh, for your consideration. There's the beloved Persis in verse uh, 12, who labored much for the Lord. Her name means Persian woman, and so probably a, 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 a freed woman who had previously been a slave. There is Rufus, uh, later joined with Chaka Khan and became famous uh, in the 70s. Uh, no, just kidding. Just checking if you are still with me. But Rufus is mentioned here, and his mother in verse 13. Uh, it is uh, uh, widely held as a, is a, t- a very much a possibility that, that Rufus was the son of uh, Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross to Cal- uh, Calvary on the morning of his, his crucifixion. Uh, Mark's gospel identifies uh, Simon's sons uh, as Alexander and Rufus. And because Mark wrote his gospel from Rome, and he identifies uh, 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 Simon uh, in the passage uh, through the mention of the names of his sons, not the other way around, indicating that his sons not only became Christians, but they were well known in the early church and significantly in the Rome, uh, the church in Rome. He describes Rufus, uh, perhaps uh, Rufus's mother, perhaps uh, Simon's wife, describes her as his mother and mine, indicating the kind of maternal care that she had given uh, Paul. We know nothing about Paul's family anywhere in the Scriptures. We don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about his father, his mother. We don't know anything about his wife. We don't know anything about his family. And and yet here uh, it appears that whatever this, uh, uh, probably much of those relationships were lost when he became a Christian, and uh, here was a woman who uh, kind of uh, took that kind of a role in, in, in the Apostle Paul's life and in caring for him, and no doubt it meant a lot to him. Uh, in verse 10, there's a list of several names and the brethren that are with them. We know nothing uh, more about uh, these men except for Paul's affection of them. Uh, Philogius and uh, Julia there in verse 15. Philogius is a, a common slave name for a male. Historically, it was, again, a, a, the name that was reserved for a slave within the imperial uh, household. Again, seeing how the gospel is reaching out into all directions in Rome, Julia appears to be uh, his wife or his, his sister. Uh, Nereus and his sister are mentioned in verse 15. We know nothing about them except they were beloved by Paul. And then Paul closes with a greeting to Olympus and all of the saints who are with him there in verse 15. Verse 16, as he ends those particular greetings, he instructs them uh, to greet one another with a holy kiss. And of course, that was the common greeting in the ancient world. Uh, not on the lips, it would be a, a kiss on either cheek. And uh, in much of the world, even today, you go to a, that part of the world and you're greeting and there'll be kind of a kiss on each side, not only uh, uh, toward uh, the opposite sex, but even uh, the same sex. And so it was the equivalent of uh, kind of a, a warm handshake in our 
our culture. And so when Paul says that they were to greet one another with a holy kiss, uh, Paul was just saying to everyone that was listening to this letter, even beyond these that he's, he's greeted by name, that, uh, that he is saying just to appreciate the blessing of Christian fellowship. Appreciate the blessing of, of, of this kind of friendship. And then play your part in making uh, any assembly uh, of the saints uh, a warm, loving, caring environment and experience. And then in verse 16, he uh, sends them greeting from all of the churches. Paul is about to leave, as we've seen, uh, to Jerusalem in order to take uh, this love offering to the needy church there in, in Jerusalem. And so he sends greetings to the church in Rome on behalf of all of the churches that were represented by the men that were going to accompany him there with that offering. And so an odd kind of uh, passage really for a Sunday morning uh, only in the sense that we probably wouldn't turn to it except that it was that next passage. But it does provide us with a a beautiful glimpse into uh, the heart of the Apostle Paul for people I don't think we would understand them at all without uh, understanding uh, this as it's revealed here, and then also uh, of, of the love and, and relational interconnectedness of the early church, uh, the diversity of that early church and how interconnected they were. And so, as, as we look at it today, to just examine our own Christian life and our own uh, commitment, I assume that Uh, most of us here are here because Calvary Chapel Modesto is our home church. But wherever uh, your home church might be, or or whatever your home church might be for the remainder of your pilgrimage, and the same thing goes for me. I'm planning on hanging around here. But um, that this would be the kind of influence and this, is, and this would be the kind of influence for relationship, for interconnectedness, for the health and warmth uh, of that church body, and not just the responsibility of some, but as Paul makes it here, the responsibility of all of us, because all of us are beneficiaries of it. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for this passage. It it opens our eyes up to Paul in a way that it takes something like this to do that. We thank you for his heart, Lord. We thank you for what he once was, his attitude that he once had towards Christians, desiring that all of them would be uh, killed or at the least imprisoned. And yet you fashioned him into this kind of a man with this kind of a heart for your body, this kind of interconnectedness, this lack of prejudice and respect of persons, a willingness to serve with and uh, to make friends of anyone and everyone abroad all, across all of the broad uh, definitions and diversity of mankind. And Lord, in this nation we live in, it's the most hyphenated country in the whole world. We pray that that same Holy Spirit that produced this in Paul 
and this heart and this attitude, this influence in the body of Christ and in a local church, that that same Spirit would be upon us in producing the same in Calvary Chapel of Modesto and anywhere else you take us, Lord, whether for a weekend or for uh, the rest of our lives, anywhere in this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.